All right, in this session, we are beginning Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, where Paul imagines some potential objections to what he has argued in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he argued that Jews are really not advantaged before God just for having circumcision and the Torah because they haven't kept it. And in some regards, that's a fairly agreed upon position. There would have been plenty of Jews who would have agreed upon that. And in fact, the dominant Jewish understanding of the day was that they were still really suffering the effects of, in some regards, the experience of exile. They were still under foreign oppression. Romans. They hadn't experienced God's Shekinah glory returning to the temple. And so in some regards, they were still experiencing the ongoing effects of the ongoing exile because of their national unfaithfulness as recorded in the Old Testament. And and so what Paul has argued in chapter 2 isn't particularly controversial, and yet it's still somewhat offensive because there was a certain dignity and a certain national pride that came with being possessors of the Torah. That was God's covenant he he was making, and he made it with the Jews, right? And there was a certain national and racial pride that came with circumcision. Um, there was a certain sense of privilege and honor with being Yahweh's chosen people, right? Didn't always have to degenerate into a haughty, self-righteous pride, but it tended towards a sense of advantage with God. And so notice how chapter 3 opens. Chapter 3 opens with a question that where Paul imagines really an objector raising this question in view of what he said in chapter 2. The question is, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew? What profit is circumcision? That's the question. And in presenting the gospel all around the Mediterranean world, as Paul has done, he's had enough experience in real debates with Jews to anticipate their questions and their objections. And so here in writing Romans, he he knows kind of the Jewish mindset. He knows what kind of response he's going to get. So in response to Paul's arguments in chapter 2, an imaginary objector blurts out this question. What advantage then is being a Jew? What advantage is circumcision? And Paul's argument has led to this point. And so to counteract this and to demonstrate how God's righteousness is unveiled in the gospel and is available to all people, Jew and Gentile, the same way by faith in Messiah, Paul has argued a pretty self-evident truth. Being part of the Torah-possessing people by itself doesn't make you faithful to God. Just because you're part of the Jewish nation, and you have the Torah. That doesn't mean you're faithful to God. And being circumcised by itself doesn't make you faithful to the covenant. In fact, what if an uncircumcised person fulfills the intent of Torah? Right. Like, so just having the law and just having circumcision doesn't make you faithful. And in fact, the, the Jews had been unfaithful to the covenant. And they had suffered its curses as Deuteronomy had predicted they would. And thus, they stood justly condemned. And the ultimate curse was exile. And they were still experiencing the effects of that by Roman occupation and oppression and by God's Shekinah glory, not having returned to the temple. And so the Jewish mindset was, 
really the exile continues and we need to be released from that. And so the natural question then is, in view of what Paul has argued, what advantage is there to being a Jew and what's the benefit of circumcision? And the Jew would naturally say in response to that, well, these have marked us out for centuries as the people of God, and now you're telling us that they don't matter, that they're no big deal? Well, that's not exactly what Paul means, and that's not exactly what Paul says. So look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, well, what advantage has the Jew? What benefit is circumcision? That's how he begins. That's the question. And in verse 2, he gives the answer. And he doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal. It's of no benefit. The law is awful. The law is terrible. It's of no benefit. He doesn't say that. Ah, uh, circumcision you know, is no big deal. He doesn't say that. That's not the answer Paul gives. What's the answer he gives in verse 2? Well, the answer he gives is great in every respect. So what advantage has the Jew? What's the benefit of circumcision? Great in every way. Great in every respect. And the main thing he notes here, he'll give other advantages later when he takes up this issue and this question full force in chapter 9. Here, the advantage he points out is, well, first of all, they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. That phrase, oracles of God, is unique, found only here in Paul's writings, and I suspect Paul chose it specifically so as not to use the word Torah or law, which he's been using and saying that's not enough, right? This phrase, oracles of God, refers to the Jewish scriptures as the very words of God. It was a message from God for his people. And the point seems to be that the Jews were given the sacred trust of being entrusted with God's very own message for the world. God's very own message of redemption, restoration. Knowing God's plan, knowing God's ways, they were entrusted with that. And that's a huge advantage. By way of parallel, I think, for example, of a a very faithful Christian family today where their kids are raised up with a true knowledge of God and they're really taught the scriptures. There's a huge advantage to knowing that, to understanding God's plans, to understanding the way life is supposed to work, right? There's a huge advantage to that. Now, obviously that advantage can be corrupted, it can be twisted, it can be perverted in all sorts of ways, both for Christians today as well as for Jews in the first century. But just the fact that you're entrusted with God's message for the world and God's message of redemption and God's wisdom to the world. And that's a massive advantage. And so Paul says, what advantage has the Jew? Well, it's great in every respect. They were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, verse 3 picks up with the question, what then, which seems to have the force of, what conclusion can we draw from this? What's the inference from this? And Paul goes on in verses 3 through 8 to really make a point about God's character. So we're, we're focused on the faithfulness of God in verse 3, that God is true in verse 4, that God is justified in bringing his case and winning the case in verse 4. In verses 5 through 8, we're focused on God's righteousness. This is important because remember that Paul is setting out to demonstrate how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. But God's promises were supposed to be fulfilled through Israel. So how can God be faithful and righteous if Israel was unfaithful? God's covenant with them clearly spelled out that if they violated the covenant, they'd be cursed. 
how can God bring righteousness to the world if Israel has been unrighteous and unfaithful? Well, Paul is showing here in verses 3 through 8 that God is still faithful to his promises and still faithful to his mission to bring his righteousness to the world, even though Israel had become part of the problem. So the question in verses 3 and 4 is, does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And the answer is, of course not. May it never be. Just because the Jews were unfaithful to their vocation before God, just because they've been unfaithful to the Torah, just because they've been unfaithful to God, doesn't mean God's not going to keep his promises and that God is being unfaithful to them. God is actually just in holding them accountable. He's just in judging them. Verses 3 and 4 read like this. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The quote there at the end of verse 4 is from Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51 is that psalm of David where he is crying out in view of his conviction and repenting before God because of his sin with Bathsheba. And in that context, David, a faithful Jew, is acknowledging that God is justified in holding him accountable. God is justified in pointing out his sins. And Paul is saying the same thing, that God is justified in holding Israel accountable. God is justified in judging them for their unfaithfulness, as he has said in chapter 2. And thus, God will win the case. He will prevail when you are judged. God, God's going to, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his truthfulness, it's going to prevail because God is right in judging them. So this leads to the question of God's justice, his righteousness, in verses 5 through 8. In verses 5 and 6, the question really is, is God unjust when he judges? And the answer is, of course not. The Jews were unfaithful, but God is true and faithful. And so God's not unjust in judging them. He's actually righteous in judging them. Listen to how Paul says it in verses 5 and 6. He writes, But if our, that's Jew, if our unrighteousness, if Jewish unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? The basic question here is this. God isn't unrighteous in judging people for their sin, is he? We can't really say that God is unrighteous when he inflicts wrath, can we? No. In fact, one of the most well-known refrains of the Old Testament is that God is a just judge of all the earth. And it doesn't matter whether God is judging Jew or judging Gentile. God's a just judge. So we can't, we can't accuse God of being unrighteous when he judges. Now, in verse 7, the imaginary objector blurts out, chimes back in with what appears to be a last-ditch effort to kind of exonerate himself. It's so ludicrous that Paul says, this doesn't even worthy of a response. And so remember, Paul has had enough of these kind of debates in real conversations with 
real Jews when he's preaching the gospel in synagogues, he knows kind of how they respond. So this is sort of his imaginary way of portraying it, but it's probably based on reality. And so verse 7, the response is this, well, if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? In other words, what the objector is saying is saying, in essence, since my unfaithfulness, my disobedience, right, my untruthfulness that led to God demonstrating his glory and his righteousness by holding me accountable, then, hey, that's a good thing. So why am I still being judged? In verse 8, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, in other words, that parenthetical statement, Paul is saying, some actually accuse me and my missionary team of saying, hey, might as well just do evil so that God's goodness will come, God's glory will come out of it, because then God can be merciful and forgiving and gracious, and his righteousness can be demonstrated. In fact, Paul will take up a very similar case in Romans chapter 6, where he says, shall we continue sinning that grace may abound? And so here he's saying, some actually accuse me of saying this, but I don't. Why don't we say, let us do evil that good may come? Because it brings about God's opportunity to display his glory, to bring his saving justice, to show his grace, right? So why not say that? Paul says, this doesn't even deserve a response. People who say that, their condemnation is just. That's how verse 7 and 8 work. And so verse 7 and 8 say in a nutshell, if our sin magnifies God's righteousness, well, that's to God's advantage and glory. And thus he really ought to reward us rather than condemn us. That's the way uh, Jack Cottrell in his commentary on Romans kind of paraphrases what Paul is saying. Uh, And thus our condemnation really is unjust. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. If you're going to say those kinds of crazy things, your condemnation really is just. So to summarize, the point here in these verses is simply this, that Jewish unfaithfulness does not negate God's faithfulness and God's righteousness. It actually provides the occasion for God to demonstrate his righteousness and makes God's righteousness in and through Jesus and the gospel necessary. Now, Paul will take up this question of God's righteousness in view of Jewish disobedience to the gospel, Jewish unbelief in the Messiah. He'll take that up in full force in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so he'll spend three whole chapters really with this question more in full uh, later in the book. But for now, he leaves it there and says, that's enough for now. He's made his point that all people from the out and out a pagan, immoral person, to the decent, good, moral person, to the Jew himself, all people are equally disadvantaged before God. All people have sinned. All people deserve condemnation. And so he's ready now to kind of tie a bow up on that argument before he offers the solution. And so in verses 9 and following, Paul then will turn to really summarize his case and say, look, this is the point. All people are condemned before God.